A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Thank you, Ellen. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, of all the things that we're going to hear about today, Uh, Your word is the most significant, so we pray, may it do your work in our lives and not return to you empty, but may it point us more towards Jesus, show us what he is like, why he is worthy of all our praise. Amen. Uh, Well, please do have that handout open in front of you. You'll see again on the right-hand side the Bible passage, and then on the left, a reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to speak about. Uh, And you'll notice also there's a discussion question. We're going to finish today just with a chance to turn to the person next to you and try and reflect a little on how this passage actually hits home for each of us so it's not just in one ear and out the other. Uh, We're coming to the second part of the very critical question that we looked at last week. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Uh, Last week, we saw that there's nothing that you can do to earn it or to deserve it. You just have to cry out to God for mercy. Uh, It's why the tax collector went home justified before God, but the Pharisee did not. Because to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a little child. Luke 18, verse 17. Uh, Today follows immediately on from our passage. In fact, look at verse 18 on the right-hand side. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You get the sense that This man has been watching on as Jesus tells the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector, as people bring babies and little children to bless him, to bless them. You get the sense that this man has been watching on, just waiting for his moment to speak up, as if to say to Jesus, okay, we're done with the children, what about me? And then we're going to see how Jesus answers. You'll see on the left-hand side that I've given you a handy hint, it's there in green, Uh, Throughout the passage, Jesus refers to eternal life, to treasure in heaven, to the kingdom of God, and to being saved. And although they're not exactly the same, they're largely synonymous. So basically, when you see one, you see the other throughout this passage. 
Well, let's have a look at it then. I, I want to start at point one with some intriguing questions from verses 18 through 21. Verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first intriguing question of this passage, I think, is why is this ruler there at all? We're told in verse 18 that he is a ruler. If you drop down to verse 23, we're told that he is very wealthy. Here is a man who has power and possessions. Does he really have any need for Jesus? Why is he here at all? Clearly, something is lacking in all of his affluence and his opulence. Something is missing despite his prominence and his prestige. Maybe he's not 100% certain that he has eternal life. Maybe, actually, he's a forward planner. I mean, there's not much point in having everything in this short life if you can't take it with you, only to be left with nothing in the life to come that lasts forever. It's a picture that's in very stark contrast with the overconfident Pharisee from last week. Here is a man, I think, who is plagued by doubts. He's lacking any confidence or assurance or certainty before God. And yet, he clearly hasn't heard a word of what Jesus has said. Because he still hasn't understood what grace is all about. You see, when he asked Jesus, what must I do? He still thinks, it's all up to me. Not receive it like a little child. So what does Jesus say in response? Pick it up in verse 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. Jesus' initial reply, no one is good but God alone, really ought to make this man pause and reflect. After all, eternal life is probably not going to be given to those who do enough. Because if it were, Jesus would be saying, all of us are in trouble. In fact, it begs the question, why does Jesus even list any commandments for us to keep when presumably none of us can actually keep them? Not if no one is good except God alone. Well, let me try and answer this with our second intriguing question there on your handout. Why does Jesus only mention five of the Ten Commandments? Why does Jesus only mention five of the Ten Commandments? And why does he mention these ones in particular? Uh, you'll have noticed that, of course. Uh, earlier, when we said the Ten Commandments together, you'll realise that the ones that Jesus mentions here, these are all from the second half of the Ten Commandments. They are from what we call the horizontal dimension of the Ten Commandments. Now, I've been talking a bit about this in recent times. You know, the horizontal and the vertical. The vertical is how we relate to God. The horizontal, that's how we relate to other people. Each of these five commandments are all about how we treat others, not how we treat God. So why is it, do you think, that Jesus chooses to mention these ones? Is it because these are the ones that you can empirically test and evaluate. Well, hold that thought for a moment. 
Let's see how the wealthy ruler responds. Verses 21 and 22. Verse 21. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. All these I have kept since I was a boy, this man says. I found myself wondering this week, what do you reckon his tone of voice was like as he answered Jesus? Or do you think he was boastful and proud? All these I have kept since I was a boy. Or perhaps was he a little less convinced, maybe a bit uncertain, maybe doubting himself? All, all these I've kept since I was a boy? My hunch, actually, is that he's wavering. He's wavering, I think, because despite his power and his possessions, he knows that something is missing. I wonder if what Jesus has said, no one is good but God alone, I wonder if that spooked him. And so to answer the third intriguing question from this passage, there on your handout, can a very wealthy ruler really lack anything? Well, yes, apparently so. What's fascinating is that without even mentioning them, Jesus' reply actually takes us to the first half of the Ten Commandments, to the vertical ones, the ones that are all about our relationship with God. You know, those are the ones at the start of the Ten Commandments, like, you shall have no other gods before me and make no graven images and don't take his name in vain. Jesus, in his reply in verse 22, in effect, points him back to that part of the Ten. And the reason I say that is because in saying to him, you still lack one thing, Jesus, I think, is using the kind of vocabulary that will make a very wealthy ruler sit up and pay attention. See, Jesus is saying to him, despite all of your riches, you're actually missing out on something, and on something of supreme importance. It's not recognition. It's not adoration or success. What you're missing out on is treasure in heaven. And the only way, according to Jesus, that you can acquire it is by selling everything you have, giving it all to the poor, and then coming and following Jesus. And that sounds to me exactly like the very first commandment that is given. The first Godward one, the first vertical commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, at this point, we see some interesting responses to what Jesus is saying, verses 23 through 30. In fact, we're going to hear responses from three groups of people, from the wealthy ruler himself, from the crowd, and then lastly from Peter on behalf of all the disciples. Let's start with the wealthy ruler, verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This man knows that he's in trouble. Uh, in fact, we're told, did you notice, verse 23, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Uh, interestingly, Luke doesn't record any comeback from him. I wonder if he's been struck speechless by what Jesus has just said. 
Still, Jesus offers him one last chance. In verse 24, we're told, verse 24, Jesus looked at him and he directly addresses him. He warns him how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now let me pause for a couple of minutes and just make some comments about what you might have heard over time about some of the wildly creative interpretations of this metaphor, camel and the eye of the needle, some of the interpretations that have, people have come up with over the years to soften Jesus' very hard teaching about wealth and riches. Perhaps the most famous is the suggestion that the eye of the needle that Jesus is referring to is actually a reference to a gate on the wall around Jerusalem through which a fully laden camel could not pass, although access was allegedly possible if you took off all of their load. That's one interpretation that people have come up with. Another is that actually Luke misheard what Jesus was saying when he really said cable rather than camel. It's easier for a cable to go through the eye needle than a camel. Now, can I say, those very creative interpretations are desperate but wrong. Jesus is clearly being absurd. He's being extreme. He, not so that we somehow try to deconstruct his metaphor, but actually so that we laugh out loud. How utterly ludicrous to imagine that someone who is rich could ever enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Wow. That's pretty confronting. That's pretty confronting for those of us who, quite frankly, on a global scale, we are like this wealthy ruler. Well, instead of me taking the usual pathway for application, are you familiar with this one? This is where I go, very sternly, are you rich? Instead of doing that, let me ask the bigger question, why can't a rich person enter the kingdom of God? Why is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich person to find eternal life? Well, what we've seen, I think, in this passage is that presumably it's because the wealthy find it hardest to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. The wealthy are the ones who think that they've earned and deserve every success that has accrued to them. And so the wealthy are the least likely to ever come to Jesus empty-handed, asking for mercy, wanting to receive it like a little child. Even if this passage is not a prescription for how to live, it's a warning about what's at stake. Well, the second response to Jesus comes from the crowd. Pick it up in verse 26. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. A proof, I think, that Jesus' metaphor about the camel and the eye of the needle is meant to be interpreted literally and not figuratively. Proof, I think, is that everyone else in the crowd gets what Jesus is saying. Everyone else understands. If this is so, Jesus, who can be saved? 
Because the logic seems to be if the rich and powerful can't be saved, if the self-made success stories we all aspire to and long to emulate, if they can't be saved for the kingdom of God, surely no one can. And just as the tax collector going home justified before God was utterly outrageous, surely being told you must sell everything and give to the poor to follow Jesus, surely that's just as unattainable. The thing is, Jesus agrees. Well, kind of. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. With God's help, he's saying, it will be possible. And so we come then to verses 28 through 30. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you want proof that it is possible to follow Jesus home to the kingdom of God? Well, the proof is that's exactly what Peter and the disciples have done. Verse 28, we have left all we have to follow you. Now, once again, this week, I found myself wondering about Peter's tone of voice. Well, what did he sound like in verse 28? Was he boastful and proud? Jesus, we have left everything behind to follow you. Or perhaps was he a little more uncertain and doubting? We've left everything behind to follow you. I actually think it's quite moving, Peter's response. To be honest, I think Peter is devastated. I think he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, we've thrown our lot in with you. We've given up everything to be with you. And now you're telling us we cannot enter the kingdom of God on our own strength. We have to receive it like a little child. Well, thankfully, of course, Jesus is called the good shepherd. He knows exactly what to say next. Verses 29 and 30. Truly I tell you, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus hears Peter's question and he reassures him that leaving everything behind to follow Jesus is worth it. And actually that plays out in two ways, two spheres you might say in verse 30. Notice how it concludes, in the age to come, eternal life. There is the reward for following Jesus. And of course, it's exactly what the ruler was asking about right at the very start of the passage. But did you also notice in verse 30, Jesus says, many times as much in this age. Many times as much in this age. It's often observed that we evangelicals are too quick to gloss over what Jesus offers and promises in this present life. And we're too quick to gloss over it because we just want to get to the good stuff, to eternity. To say that in eternity there is the kingdom of God and that's for all who trust in Jesus. 
And of course, that's right and true, but therefore, it opens us to the charge that, and um, here's how it was explained to me when I was at Bible college years and years ago. I've never forgotten it. It's as if we're the kind of people who are all just on about pie in the sky when you die. And that's the only reason why you'd be a Christian. It doesn't really matter what happens now, but when you die, you get to go and be with Jesus in heaven. Isn't that fantastic? Pie in the sky when you die. When in fact, this is what my Bible college lecturer used to tell us, he used to say, we should also be on about steak on your plate while you wait. Steak on your plate while you wait. Now, it's really corny, right? But it's stuck in my mind ever since, and it's going to stick in yours now as well. How reassuring. What Jesus is saying to Peter, racked with doubt that perhaps they've thrown their lot in with the wrong person. Yes, in the age to come there is eternal life, but in the here and now there is many times as much. Now, of course, the question is, what is Jesus promising in this age? What is the many times as much? Well, this is critical. Look again at verse 29. Jesus is not promising power and possessions like that very wealthy ruler had. What Jesus is promising is the joy and delight of family. Verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children will fail to receive many times as much in this age. These are descriptions of family, of what it means to be part of something wonderful that Jesus is forming. Some of you will have heard of Sam Albury. Uh, Sam Albury, an English pastor and writer, a wonderfully godly man, was out here a couple of years ago. I remember Sam telling me once that uh, what Jesus promises here... Oh, sorry, a bit about Sam. So he's an English pastor. He's also same-sex attracted. And so he will never marry. And therefore the whole struggle of loneliness is one of the things that he constantly grapples with. I remember him telling me once that uh, when he reads a passage like Luke 18, he hears Jesus promise a same-sex attracted person that they will have more family in church than anywhere else. That's what Jesus is promising. If you come after him, a hundred times as much in this age. And of course the reason why this is stuck in my mind is because Sam, this wonderful godly British pastor, I still have his voice ringing in my head, him saying, if this is what Jesus promises, let's not make a liar out of Jesus then. Can I say, I know that we're not perfect at this, but this is what we're striving for. This is what we're striving to be in our church. Now as I mentioned, towards the end of last year, uh, the conversation that I keep having over and over again with members of this church from every age and stage of life is a real appetite for intergenerational connection. From our 9am'ers through to our 7pm'ers to recognise that we are not just one demographic, we are part of a whole family. Well, practically speaking, how do you belong? How do you belong to this family that Jesus is leading? Well, uh, you remember that I mentioned earlier in Family News, I invited you, if you're new to us and checking us out, to come along to belong. That's the reason why I put the graphic there again at the bottom. Uh, that's one of the ways in which you try and introduce people to what we stand for in this church. Here's what I'm going to talk about at belong. 
What does it mean to belong to this church family? Well, three things. Firstly, it means that you come to the family gathering every Sunday. You come to the family gathering every Sunday. Because can I say, we do feel your absence. It's like the first question that people ask when they go to a family occasion, like a wedding or a birthday party. The first thing people say is, oh, where's so-and-so? Why aren't they here? So you come to the family gathering each Sunday. Secondly, you join a growth group. You join a growth group. And again, I talked about these before. Uh, The reason for that, of course, is that in a church of our size, in a family of our size, you can't know everyone. And we're not unrealistic in trying to pretend that you can or that we ought to do everything together. It's just not practical or possible in a big family, but it is on a smaller scale. So you join us each Sunday and you get involved in one of our growth groups that meet midweek or before work or on a Sunday afternoon or in people's homes. And the third thing you do to belong to this family is that you serve like family members do. Because you know, of course, that when you go to a family occasion, like a birthday party, you don't sit around waiting for others to serve you. Everyone pitches in and everyone helps out. Those are the ways in which we talk in this church about what it means to belong to our church family. We don't have a formal membership structure. You don't have to sign anything. This is what it means. And sometimes I hear from people, they say they've been coming here for a while but they don't feel like they belong. And I know, of course, as I said before, we're not perfect. We don't get everything right the first time. But I do want to say... You will never feel like you belong until you show up. Well, let me talk for a couple of minutes about some application. Point three down the bottom. Let me mention three things, and then, as I said, I'll get you just to turn to the person next to you and talk about one aspect. Firstly, doing the cost-benefit analysis. Doing the cost-benefit analysis. One of the things I think that we we learn from the passage here as Jesus talks to this very wealthy ruler is that every decision in life is really a cost-benefit analysis. It's a cost-benefit analysis calculation. What will I gain, but what do I have to give up? It seems to me actually that every decision you make in life is like that. Uh, Of course, we don't always work it through in detail. We don't always go back to first principles. But constantly, that's the calculation that we're making in our heads as we think about what to do. Let me give you some examples. Uh, One is to do with exercise. Now, when I was a younger man, I actually didn't think much about the cost uh, because, actually, there wasn't much. And I know that one day, a day is coming when I'm a much older man, when I know I won't be able to do any exercise because, actually, the cost will be too great. My problem, of course, is that I'm in that cursed spot called middle age where... Every decision about exercise is really, I I want to do it, but gosh, I know how much it's going to hurt me for a week afterwards. It's a cost-benefit calculation. Or take a different illustration. This is one that's all very familiar to us at the moment. The cost-benefit analysis that we do when it comes to what kind of freedoms will we embrace in COVID times. As I said over the last few weeks, 
Every member of our church family has a personal, individual choice to make at the moment about will they go out in public. There is a risk that you might catch COVID. It might just be the inconvenience of becoming a close contact and having to spend time in ISO. There's a cost-benefit calculation. And I know every single person here is constantly making that calculation in their head. I want to say, we want to support everyone in our family as best we can, no matter what their choice is. Because that's actually what families do. And this came home for me just before Christmas when I made the decision to fly up to Sydney to see my mother on her 75th birthday, having not seen her for a year. I was there for 12 hours in the end. But that kind of decision, we all know what that's about. Back to this passage, it seems to me that if you're very wealthy, then the opportunity cost can seem much higher. That is, what you are leaving behind can figure very prominently in your calculation compared with a pauper who quite literally has nothing to lose. And yet, Jesus is saying, I think, don't focus just on what you stand to lose that will probably paralyse you. Rather, focus on what you stand to gain because that can liberate you. Giving away your present wealth versus gaining treasure in heaven? Well, to use the wonderful words of Jim Elliot, losing which cannot be kept to gain that which cannot be lost is never foolishness. There's a challenge for us here, I think. The challenge is, I think, if our lifestyle looks identical to the unbelievers around us, in terms of our possessions and our power, in terms of the way we use our time or our desire for experiences, maybe our worry and anxiety about the future, if our lives look identical to the unbelievers around us, well... Perhaps it's because we are no different. Perhaps it's because we've done the cost-benefit analysis and we've decided that it's easier not following Jesus. Perhaps we've chosen to not put God first. Second point of application. What's the one thing that you must leave behind to follow Jesus? What's the one thing you must leave behind to follow Jesus. It could be possessions and wealth. That's at least true from this passage. But to widen the application, what's the one thing you must leave behind to follow Jesus or to keep following Jesus? Maybe it's your pride, your name, your reputation, your recognition. Because Christians aren't particularly well regarded in our society. Will you be a follower of Jesus, known to all, to be someone who has thrown your lot in with him? What's the one thing you must leave behind? Maybe it's ease and comfort and opportunity. Now, let me be very clear. 
This is not salvation by self-denial. Rather, it's an encouragement that we need to get rid of distractions that can prevent us from storing up treasure in heaven. Well, once again, the challenge. The challenge, I think, how do you know you have left everything behind to follow Jesus? How do you know you've left everything behind to follow Jesus? Well, even if you won't do so intentionally and proactively, one way to tell, I think, is how do you react if you lose it all? Or what do you worry and obsess about? Are you worried and obsessed about losing all that you have accumulated for yourself? One of the most encouraging conversations I've had in the last few months was with, the member of, with a member of this church from another gathering. He told me how a number of years ago he lost everything through a failed business venture, but he grew closer to Jesus and more like Jesus as a result. Can I say, I think that's the reason why so many here in our church give so generously to the work of the gospel. It's because we understand that everything that we have belongs to God anyway. It's not mine anymore. My money is not my own. In fact, my life is not my own anymore. And only that conviction, I think, can enable you to release and relax your grip and hold a little less tightly to the things of this world. Do the cost-benefit analysis. Ask what's the one thing you must leave behind. Thirdly and finally, what could persuade you that following Jesus is worth it? What could persuade you that following Jesus is worth it? Here's all I want to say. This kingdom, this kingdom of God, it has a king we can trust with our life. This kingdom has a king we can trust with our life. After all, this king will lay down his life for us. In fact, in a few chapters' time, we're going to see that the promises he makes, they are guaranteed in his blood. His covenant with us, quite literally, is written in his own blood. And so what seems impossible to us it is still possible for him as we follow him home to our Father's house, which has many rooms, and where he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for every one of us.